Welcome to Season 3 of To Be Continued Troubling the Archive. In today's episode, guest producer Cole Piplinski is in conversation with Sean Carson Kinsella. They will be talking about being indigiqueer, the role and gift of storytelling, and how powerful that gift can be when informed by their multifaceted humanness. Welcome. Uh, my name is Cole Paplinski. I am a guest producer on the podcast series To Be Continued. Uh, I am really excited to be here today and to uh, be here with my guest, Sean, who will uh, introduce themselves. All right. Danse. Gizigagahuna Tisnikas. Gay. Wasaskoti. Kihu uh, Nidisiakasan and Hiana Tia Timsamakmeti Irish Indau. Um, so I'm Sean uh, Carson Kinsella. Uh, and uh, what I just said in uh, one of, well, it's a mix of the two languages or two of the languages that my people come from. Uh, so a little bit of Anishinaabe Moen, a little bit of Nahiwawiwin. Uh, and what I introduced and said, um, uh, my traditional uh, protocol greeting. Uh, so I talked a little bit about where um, I come from. Uh, and my family is from uh, Treaty 6, um, as well as Northern Ontario. Uh, and my dad is uh, Irish uh, by way of Montreal. So that was all my, in my intro there, because um, I told you a little bit about the language and culture groups that my, my family comes from. Um, and uh, where we uh, reside currently uh, is near the Battlefords in Saskatchewan. Like our family uh, has been there for, for many generations. And uh, we're there um, before... Um, I think even the treaty signing process uh, took place. Um, and so that's uh, where they continue to reside. Uh, and where I currently reside is where I was born, uh, which is in Toronto. Um, and uh, the other place that I live is uh, called Guam, uh, which is um, now called essentially the Trent River. Um, but it, uh, I believe it means place where, uh, where they're sort of like bad rapids um, and you have to take your canoe out is one of the translations I've heard. Um, so that's, uh, I kind of migrate between those two places, which is uh, very fitting um, because I come from very migratory people. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm really delighted uh, and honored to be here. Miigwech. Thank you so much. Um, so my name is Cole Pavlinski. I use they, them pronouns. Um, my people are Anishinaabe from uh, Kibawek First Nation. I am a registered band member there. And I am also Métis um, and tracing that lineage, but have been uh, lucky enough to have teachings been passed down to me through my grandfather um, before he passed. Uh, and um, I was born and raised in North Bay, Ontario, the territory of the Nipissing people, Anishinaabe people there. And uh, that I moved to Anishinaabe Algonquin territory of Ottawa. Um, oh my God, almost over 10 years ago to pursue uh, post-secondary and kind of continued my journey here. Um, I think it's important uh, when we do introductions Oh, sorry. I want to welcome you here, Sean, and, and thank you for being with me today and in conversation. And we're just going to like talk about the theme of the podcast. So I introduced at the beginning uh, that the podcast is a part of the 
uh, Queering the Archives, to to be continued Queering the Archives um, exhibit, which I was an artist, a part of that initial exhibition in 2020. Um, I had a piece that was featured, it was called Grassroots. It was a piece that featured three protest images that I had beaded some beadwork on top of to kind of tell the story of like how um, many of our our fights or uh, uh, journeys or, or fights for justice are intertwined um, and, and how a lot of those stories um, often get get left behind in mainstream culture, especially when we talk about um, indigenous uh, acts of resistance or queer acts of resistance. Um, and so I the theme of this season of of the podcast is indigenous black racialized diasporic and queer archives of longings, memories, and inheritance in arts-based practices. And kind of when we center, it's kind of centered around inheritance in the arts-based practices or in our ways of, of like sharing art. And when I, like the first thing that comes to my mind is like storytelling and how, um, like storytelling is something that's central to a lot of cultures globally and specifically to the indigenous communities of Turtle Island here. Um, so I kind of want to start by thinking about like how we've introduced ourselves at the beginning of this podcast and kind of maybe dive into why it's important that we like place ourselves in relation to the things that we mentioned. So I wonder if you have any thoughts about that yeah so when i think about uh introducing myself um so part of it was situating it in the territories uh that i come from territories that my family comes from um you know i think it's important to recognize um that in a lot of ways uh like the stories uh, of, of my own creation um are diasporic ones and so um, you know, my father's family um, and part of my mother's being dislocated from Ireland uh, because of colonization uh, and ending up here. Um, you know, my uh, family left uh, where they were from, so um, northern Ontario, uh, as well as Saskatchewan, um, because of racism, uh, ended up in southern Ontario, which is where um, my mom grew up and, and where I grew up. And so I think it's important to recognize both the responsibility that we have to those broader uh, kinship pieces, but also what it means to um, to have some of those uh, different ways um, that we have come to be and how to create those connections to land. So for myself, um, you know, another thing I often talk about is um, that I'm Megazito Dem, uh, and that's an, an adoption um, into an Anishinaabe uh, family. Uh, that was important to me because um, even though uh, I grew up um, off of my own territory um, in Treaty 6. Um, you know, it was important to me to build relations uh, with Indigenous folks that are here and to understand that, that responsibility um, of, of nations that we were historically allied with. So I'm also Nakaway um, or uh, Plains Ojibwe as well. Uh, and so really these are talking about our relatives um, and folks that we would have been in relationship with and been related to and understanding those kinship structures. Um, when I think of my own family, I also have to reference uh, like the Cardinals, the Jarlises, the Whitfords, the Cladus, and those other um, folks who didn't have last names um, uh, that were translated in English. 
and recognizing that those are also part of, of my creation story and kinship structures. Uh, and so I think um, whenever I introduce myself, I want to make sure that I'm really tying myself back to who those folks are that I'm responsible to, what communities I'm responsible to, um, and uh, you know, using the language, I think, is a really key way of doing that. So I think those are the ways that I try and make sure when I'm doing these introductions and situating ourselves that I'm searching for kinship with other people. Uh, and I think that's a very um, Indigenous way of, of doing things and, and looking for that, like trying to figure out how are we related uh, to one another, how are we related to the territory, um, and, you know, who we're accountable and responsible to. Um, and those aren't necessarily ways that uh, I would say a lot of times uh, non-Indigenous folks introduce themselves to each other, where it's often sort of like, you know, where you live or what you do for work or, you know, those sorts of pieces versus the like real desire to understand the structure of how we, we fit together. Yeah, I think that's really like important uh, part of how Indigenous people connect and relate to one another. Um, and I think like it's a lot, there's a lot of discussion all the time on like who you're responsible to and who your um, connections are and who, and more within like in specifically in Indigenous communities and now around like who claims you, who you're responsible to and who you um, relate to is like really important. Um, and so I, I really appreciate what you're, uh, what you said, um, around like grounding yourself in not only like the connections that you have made in the places and spaces you take up now, but also the ones that have come before you, uh, those ancestral, um, connections and, and lineages. I think for me, I'm still, uh, in the process of figuring out how to how to best introduce myself in spaces and and what spaces I, uh, what parts of identity do I embody? Um, not so much an identity, but I guess like what uh, what spaces am I taking up? What am I embodying in those spaces? And how do I introduce myself in a good way that is like all encompassing. And I feel like I don't have a, a spiel quite uh, yet, but one day I like, will have like that verbatim introduction that will roll off the tongue. Um, that is the dream. <laughs> um, so I just like, I love the idea of like introductions or these ways of like introducing and relating to each other for ourselves, um, it it's kind of reminiscent of like how everything has a is like within a circle, but has like a creation attached to it. You mentioned that uh, the way you introduce yourself is a way to honor the creation of ourselves and of your story. And I was wondering if you could delve a little bit deeper into that and into um, like why creation stories and stories of creation are so important um, for us as indigenous people and as people of the diaspora and also how um, that storytelling, like what that means to you as as someone who 
who lives in this world. Yeah, so I think for me, a lot of it is that it, um, uh, like I think of the, what comes to mind for me often is this sort of like uh, Cree word Wagoatin, this idea of kinship. And I think uh, creation stories allow us to understand like our place in those, in those, um, in the cosmos. Um, and I think it provides a framing then for, uh, and I'm thinking like, I'm pulling on some of the folks I'm thinking about are, um, like Thompson highway, um, who's a fantastic, uh, Cree playwright, um, and author. And he talks about this idea of, um, like the difference in the way we structure the world, depending on how your creation stories function. Uh, so if you, you know, if you're using, a creation story that is centered around like humans and humans as a dominant force, which I think a lot of uh, settler colonial folks use as their foundational creation story. Um, you know, whether that was the intended purpose of it or not, um, it leads you to a very different place. If you think about many creation stories from across Turtle Island that talk about that our place in the cosmos is actually the ones who were created sort of last and are oh like oh the rest of creation are um the knowledges that we carry right so it's the idea of like if everything on the earth is an older sibling and we're the youngest then we have the most to learn and you know i think it creates a level of humility and a recognition that you know we're coming into the story relatively late and so in that way uh, it gives us i think a leveraged opportunity to really think about um, what stories, you know, are we hearing in the land? Uh, what stories can we hear from each other? Um, and I think it creates a, a really deep practice of listening um, because everything in creation has a story, right? Everything in creation has a story of how it came to be here. Um, you know, a lot of our sacred stories um, are sort of responses to some of those things and, and dictate why the world looks the way that it does. But I think it's also this idea that creation is like ever occurring. So I think um, this is another area where for me, the power of our creation story is in those stories because it doesn't, it doesn't stop. Like the universe continues to expand. Um, other parts of the universe continue to be created. Um, and so it isn't sort of this like linear way of thinking about stories, but one that, as you said earlier, Cole, like really speaks to those circles. So I think for me as an artist, you know, it's really trying to um, capture some of those stories um, that folks haven't heard before, or maybe they've heard it, but I can frame it in a slightly different way. Or, um, you know, they're like, I think about a lot of like, um, what is palatable for the colonial audience around stories and what kind of stories we're allowed to tell. And I've been talking about this a lot lately that a lot of our stories that we're allowed to tell are ones that are based in trauma. Um, they're ones that are based in sort of things acting upon us. <clears throat> um, and I think those are important, right? That's part of that truth telling, which I think is um, really critical for storytelling, but it's not all. And I think when we think about the other kinds of stories, the ones that we're often not telling uh, are those ones um, that use our languages, which inform our worldviews, which inform our understanding of the cosmos, which inform like the fact that the way that I was taught, um, 
when we're speaking, we can only really speak from our experience or things that we have ourselves heard. Um, and so I think it's a very different way of thinking about stories um, because there's no shortage, right? There's no shortage of supply of stories all around us all the time. Um, and so I think the work of an artist is to try and, you know, capture our those things in our unique perspectives, but also especially as I would say like a two-spirit uh, Aguayo artist, um, it's really important to, you know, um, ensure that there's also stories of resistance, also stories of joy, um, also uh, stories that push back on sort of things like um, sexual shame and stigma uh, that came from colonialism to push back on ableism and transphobia and homophobia and allow for our full existence as humans as we fit into those other kinship structures and the, and the cosmos. Um, so I think it, it is a really like profound role to be a storyteller. Um, and I think is also something that's so fundamental as Indigenous folks when you understand how our communities were traditionally structured. So I, I'll speak for Nahil and Atio and like Anishinaabe people, you know, um, we lived relatively far north, um, you know, around the Great Lakes, but often our wintering grounds were a little bit further north. And the, the earth used to be, um, and this is what I've heard some of our elders and old people talk about, you know, our winters used to last six to eight months. Um, and so because we were in smaller family units because of what the land could sustain at that time, you have a lot of time where you're not leaving a lodge. You're with a very small group of people. So what do you do to pass the time? Well, uh, as I understand it, um, you know, you told stories of creation. You told stories about how the world came to be. You told our sacred stories uh, as a part of that. And there's a bunch of like traditional um, restrictions as to why we tell certain stories at certain times and other pieces. But really, it's a recognition that um, what if storytelling was um, a major thing that we did as opposed to, I think in, in settler colonialism, artists feels like, um, I think of around when COVID happened, how... Um, there was this discussion that like art was uh, less important, like art was somehow like an added bonus. Um, but what if, you know, art and language and culture, like what if that was essential to our survival as humans? And what if we thought of it that way, you know, how would we elevate then um, storytelling? How would we elevate the stories that we tell about ourselves, about other people, about our experiences, you know? And, um, you know, I, I think about, although it's like somewhat um, like he himself is somewhat controversial now in community, I think. Um, but, you know, I, uh, something that's always stuck with me is the sort of um, Massey lecture that Thomas King did uh, where he talks about how stories, the truth about stories is that that's all we are. And so instead of thinking about us as a human, um, I think, you know, and this thing that's extracted from the rest of creation you know, what if we're all just bundles of our own stories, uh, interacting with other stories of creation uh, all the time? So I think it's a really profound shift in, in the way we think about stories and also our own construction, um, because the world is uniquely seen through my perspective, right? No one else has my particular identities. No one else has my particular experience. Uh, and therefore, you know, there's a, a unique voice and perspective that every single thing in creation and every human brings. And so I don't think, like I said earlier, there's a shortage of stories for us to tell. Um, but I think that um, there is a hierarchy in settler colonialism of who gets to be a storyteller. 
in our communities, it was often like, you know, everyone could bring a story um, and stories were used for teaching, right? Stories were used to entertain and to teach and to talk about morals uh, and to talk about how we came to be here. So I can't think of anything actually more important than that. Yeah, you've just said so many powerful, like, poignant things that I, like, don't know which to grab onto first. The thing that resonated, I think, the most for me was the idea around, like, the way the worldview, like, if you start to think of us as people, as bundles of stories, the way in which your worldview kind of shifts, um, as opposed to um, thinking about us as like human beings or whatever that looks like. I think it also goes back to what you were talking about earlier about like kinship and relation and like how we relate to one another and to creation and what and that creation is like always um, happening, like you said, like it's not linear, it doesn't stop and start, it's just constant, like uh, within those circles. Um, I think, yeah, it's just, I also want to touch a little bit about how you talked about um, how storytelling is a way to like push those um, boundaries or those uh, worldviews uh, that have been like so set in stone by settler colonialism. Uh, you talked a little bit about, you know, pushing back against ableism and racism and uh, cl- settler colonial gaze and and letting ourselves be kind of these bundles of stories or these, you you know, humans, but in our multiplicities. Um, so I would love to talk a little bit about how you incorporate or like how does your queerness or your two-spiritness like inform your writing or your storytelling and how or how do those two things inform each other i think i'll lean a little bit on on sort of queer theory there to say um you know i think this is where Settler colonialism does us a tremendous disservice around limiting our complexity. So I think in a lot of ways, like um, if we make if we make the assumption and I will for myself that like I've always been queer, um, then any story that I've ever written and or and told myself, like it's framed by that because that's the lens with which I live my life. Um, And I think that, you know, when I think about how our societies to my understanding for Anishinaabe and the Heo and the Theo people operated it was about how do you find a place for everyone and how do you make sure that everyone's perspective is honored and there were councils and and ways that our communities were structured to make sure everyone had a voice Um, and so I think it's a little bit of that of trying to speak to to who I am um, and be be authentic to, to those pieces um, and also I find writing is beautiful to help you figure some of those things out. So I think for myself, like, um, you know, I write a lot of, a lot of smutty poetry, um, as part of my writing practice. Um, and something about that is there's, there's an ability within that to explore 
um, desire and an explore attraction and write, you know, stories about fantasies, um, you know, and things that I'm thinking about. Um, and because it's this like ephemeral sort of world, um, you can really play in a way that I think brings a lot of joy. Um, because it, it doesn't have to be restricted by rules, um, by things like grammar or settler colonialism or, you know, um, those normal romantic narratives that are just like, you know, cis hetero narratives. Um, we can play with desire. We can play with, I'll use an example. Um, something I try really hard to do is to not use pronouns, um, or to not use singular pronouns, um, when I'm writing. And I think it's a really interesting practice as a writer um, because you're like, well, when you think of how often um, English and French and other colonial languages lean on pronouns, it's actually quite a challenge to try and write in that way to, to sort of gender neutral your language. Um, and I think it makes it more accessible for everyone uh, because that way everyone can see themselves reflected in some of those fantasies and desires because uh, I think it could be really jarring as a queer person when every book is designed for straight people, right? And every romance is designed for straight people. Um, and, you know, every, um, a lot of work is designed, you know, to also really reinforce like um, not only just heteronormativity, but also like modern normativity. And so for me, there's a challenge there about how do I like to queer something? It's really, how do I push it beyond this normative understanding of, of, uh, of stories and literature, um, and how do I play with language, right? So, um, you know, can I write uh, a smutty story um, about getting off without using pronouns? Um, how do we go about doing that? Um, you know, how can I uh, push on some of the conventions that are contained in writing um, to be able to, you know, play with those different elements um, and, and again, and decolonize language a bit, right? Because I think when we talk about how a lot of our other languages were traditionally structured. They're not structured by, by gender or pronouns in the same way. So, you know, it is a little bit of a sneaky way. And, and for myself, I also um, will try and, and use um, language in there, like indigenous languages, um, depending on what the feel of the piece is, um, and do some of those things. Because to me, it's also about reclamation. So, you know, writing is a place that exists outside of some of the constructs of what everyday life looks like. Um, you can explore a lot of desires and things in, in sort of a safe, sacred space uh, as a writer. Um, and, you know, I think it's also important to recognize that stories and writing, it's not necessarily for everyone or even for anyone, right? And I think that's the whole piece around um, what it means to be a writer and a storyteller. You know, you may only write those things down for yourself. Um, and I think for myself, who, who does a little bit more um, who puts my work in the world, you know, some of it is maybe this will resonate with someone. Maybe this will make someone feel less alone. Um, you know, maybe this will titillate someone or maybe this will make someone, um, will turn someone on or make them laugh or, you know, hopefully all of the above. Um, and so I think that there's pieces there, um, around decolonizing sexuality, um, around pushing back on some of these, uh, notions of, of what, um, traditional literature looks like uh, that I think is really important and again has an element of play and ceremony to it um, because it is about sort of like messing with um, the ways that you know traditional literature is done um, and um, 
you know, and I also kind of joke that, uh, and I, you know, I think a lot about icons like Thompson Highway and others that have come before, um, where, you know, you, you can't directly translate some of our languages into English, um, but you can also still, weirdly enough, have fun with English. Like English can be a fun language to play with, um, but you just have to recognize that a lot of the seriousness that often comes through literature, like that's settler colonialism. So, you know, it doesn't have to be um, something that is based in trauma. It can be based in joy. It can be based in ridiculousness. Um, you know, I find some of my favorite pieces are the ones that I've struck this really good balance with like, it's sexy, it's really funny. Um, you know, it makes me blush a little bit to write. Uh, it certainly makes me blush a little bit to read it. Um, and, you know, hopefully uh, for someone else, uh, it's something where for my community, like I kind of look at all of my my poems and my writing as like tiny love letters uh, to, to other Eagüeyo, uh two-spirit, crip, indigenous people, because I'm not necessarily writing um, for uh, for another audience. I'm writing for my community um, in what ways that we can recognize each other. I think what I love the most is that your pieces, which we'll get into in a second, or your poems, they they do strike that balance, that balance between, um, I know for me reading them as an audience member, as, as one of the two-spirit, uh, chronically ill people perusing your Instagram, um, and and hearing you perform and stuff i definitely uh like feel the whole range of emotions when reading your work or experience um those moments of like tenderness or uh like harsh reality but with like a a gentleness with it as well um and I think that's what makes uh, a beautiful um, story or like uh, an interesting, especially like erotic or smutty piece is when it can like invoke those emotions that are like a little bit um, deeper than, uh, than just the fun, um, like surface level emotions. I think it's also, I would love to go back to how oftentimes, like you were saying, our stories are, or the stories that get told oftentimes are the ones that center around our trauma or our disconnection or our um, various like run-ins with settler colonialism in violent ways. And I think prioritizing or creating this space in which we can share art and stories and creation that encompasses those full um full multifaceted parts of ourselves are really important uh and really like beautiful uh so i want to say mcgritch for sharing that with us and sharing your like philosophies on these things. And then also I would love to, you kind of alluded to this uh, recent earlier, but you have been participating in what I think you call Smuttober um, on Instagram, where you take prompts and write a little, a little ditty 
Um, so I would love to uh, kind of like hear more about that um, and what kind of like got you into um, writing those pieces around those prompts. And like, is that an exercise that you're doing for yourself or is it, um, yeah, like let's just explore that. Yeah. So I think I love a good writing prompt. Um, I think that um, part of it is, um, you know, like one of my, like my first, uh, one of my first loves has always been reading and, um, and the written word. And I think I find prompts to be very creative, stimulating. Um, Cause again, sometimes like, um, and I think we get into this a little bit later with some of the questions, but like writing can be a very isolated uh, practice. Um, I think uh, inherently, right. So, because you're, you're in your head a lot. Um, you're in your head about constructing, for me, it's like constructing scenarios and writing out these muddy things. Like it's, it's a very isolated act. And so like I often, uh, for myself, um, you know, sometimes I'll be, like I'll be composing whole lines of work, uh, like in my head in the shower or like commuting or something like that. Uh, and I've always kind of done that. So what I, what I love about prompts is it, it really, um, challenges me a little bit to kind of um, get those creative juices flowing and create a little bit of a practice. This one uh, called Sluttober um, was uh, originated by um, sort of an internet friend of mine, B, um, who does uh, these amazing um, uh, photo sets uh, around the theme. And so, um, you know, uh, came up with with the particular uh, prompts and I was like those are really cool I generally like to do Indian Arttober um, which I think was uh, often like ink artists came up with it and I started a couple years ago uh, to do um, writing prompts based on it because um, again I think looking at different ways of of creating art in our communities is also um, important and, and I'm not a visual artist in that way uh, but I was like I can certainly write prompts based on this um, and so this year I've kind of tried to merge the two. And some of that I think is because for me, like I really, um, you know, I think decolonizing sexuality uh, is is really important to me. Um, and I think it's important, especially as a Crip person and as an Indigenous person, like, um, and as a, a Gueo person, like my sexuality is very fraught. Uh, it shouldn't exist, right? So especially as a Crip person, like I'm not supposed to have desires like I I'm supposed to be um you know either hypersexual as a two-spirit queer person or um you know and as a crip person like not sexual at all um, and settler colonialism has instituted in our communities a lot of shame uh in addition like actual trauma um that has happened through things like residential school but also just um you know especially as um, femme two-spirit folks, um, like a lot of violence has, has happened to us. And so I think there's a lot of internalized messages around shame that we're not supposed to be sexual or that's not supposed to be for us. And I think it's a really important reclamation, um, you know, to write smutty poetry and I think to do it artfully. So this is the thing for me is like, um, I really love writing poetry because of the like ability it has to tell a very, a, a, a small story uh, and part of the challenge is how do you do it in a cohesive way in a very small amount of text? Um, and so I like that that level of challenge because it, it's very, um, like it stimulates um, so many parts of, of uh, so many parts around how to do that. Um, and so I think for myself, like it was really like I've been doing these kind of Indian art prompts the last couple of years. And I was like, what if I just 
tried to make them smutty for the the whole month, right? Like what if, you know, and it's funny for me because even when I'm smutty, often I end up being earnest anyway, um, just because of, I think, uh, who I am as a human. So that kindness, I think, really comes through. But I really was challenging myself this month to kind of say, what if I made the thing that is an Indian art prompt smutty and did so in as respectful a way as possible, right? Because sometimes those things uh, don't coexist. And that's part of like the the, the bringing of the, of the two hashtags are about actually really truthfully decolonizing sexuality to say, I bet you I can do some creative things, you know, with some of these prompts that are very much based in sort of an indigenous sense of humor uh, and fun, and also based in sort of like a more um, smutty sensibility. Um, and I have to give a lot of credit to be as a, as a, someone who does this as part of sex work, actually, um, you know, because a lot of uh, what they were doing as part of their work. Um, and so I think it's one of those pieces where uh, it's a very mutually beneficial creative sort of piece because I think um, they've been quite uh, excited to see what I've taken and run with it. And I'm excited to see what they do with it also. So I think there's some really cool generative pieces that can happen uh, when we uh, are working across, you know, and they're also someone who is a, a queer and um, and a crip creator also. So I think there's some really neat um, sort of like solidarity that can happen when we when we work um, together on those things. So, uh, so that's really for me, what it came from is I looked at the prompts and I was like, this would be really fun. And I did it for myself. Uh, it doesn't come across this way sometimes when I read and stuff, but I'm actually quite, quite shy. Uh, and the idea of making people feel uncomfortable, like a recovering people pleaser for me is like very hard. So it is actually quite a push, uh, to put some of the, the stories and some of the smutty stuff out there. Um, and it's really just a lot of people giving me very positive feedback about how much it means to them and how much they enjoy it um, and how much um, they see themselves in it that keeps me doing that work. Because um, again, I think it's really important to grapple with, you know, why um, do those kind of poems make people feel uncomfortable? Um, because to be honest, like I know in our communities, in a lot of cases, like the aunties and some of the folks that I know, the grandmas and some of the other folks, like tell the filthiest stories like some of our creation stories and our traditional stories are like really dirty and they're really funny when we talk about what we're allowed to be like that needs to be part of it that is just as traditional as the hunting and the fishing and the trapping right was the stories we used to tell each other to entertain each other and make each other laugh and make each other blush like all of those things are a part of who we are um, as indigenous people and i think especially as queer and aigueo folks like that's the kind of thing that we can bring back to our communities because that's a way that we operate in our in queer spaces also when we're allowed to be there. Yeah, you're totally right with like aunties and cookums being like sometimes having like the dirtiest jokes. Um, I sometimes you you're sitting around the fire and you they just let let one rip and you're you're totally taken aback. But it's it's so funny to think that there's this it's like this double-edged sword of like settler colonialism has made these things shameful but at the same time like in the way you were saying that like these histories and desires and uh they make up our beings as well and our bundles and i i just i want to thank you for sharing that with us and also i was wondering um do you have has there been like a prompt from this 
set of prompts that has like stuck out to you as like one of your favorites? Oh, that's a good question. Um, so one of the ones that I read, um, so I do, um, seasonally, it sounds like actually is what's starting to happen, but I do seasonal readings, um, as part of a, a group called Smut Peddlers, um, that, uh, was started at Glad Day. Uh, and that particular reading series, um, started a little bit before COVID, um, and it came out of actually the Naked Heart Literary Festival that I've been a part of, uh, the last couple of years. What we do is really, we get together every few months and, uh, we just read smutty work. Um, and so... Um, this the one that I did uh, most recently, which was I think last week. Although uh, my days are getting a little blurred together, um, I, I debuted one called Slime, and that one. Um, sometimes when I write as a practice, I don't really know where it comes from, and this was just an image, uh, and and my brain kind of went with that. And so, really, it's actually a story about decolonization, and it's a story about how would we distract politicians long enough. Um, to like be able to actually like get our items back from museums and reclaim what's ours. And so, um, you know, it really started from kind of a funny, like thinking about that place. Um, but I really enjoy, like, it's a very funny story um, because it is both like very filthy, but then also has that little bit of um, like very tongue in cheek and very playful. Um, and so I think, that one was really fun to write um, just because it took me on a bit of a journey. Um, and that's the thing with my particular writing process um, is uh, I don't actually always know where it's going to go. Um, so the, the stories um, and the little sort of vignettes that are my poems often take me on a journey too. Uh, and so my hope is always um, that folks reading it can get taken on that journey as well. And that I'm doing what I'm seeing in my head um, and what I have kind of visualized that I'm doing it justice with the words that I'm able to, to bring to it, um, while also balancing those other pieces about, you know, how do I ensure the language is accessible? How do I play with, with English and kind of, um, wrap it to what I want to actually do with it? So, yeah, I would say slime is a particular favorite. Um, yeah, it's like an interesting piece because I feel like for a lot of my writing, like it's really hard to choose to pick favorites because uh, they all kind of feel like um, this sounds really corny, but uh, I know someone was talking about how uh, I was talking to a, a friend of mine, Alicia, about this idea of what are some of our Cree roles are in this idea of giving life to something. And I feel like these poems often take on a life of their own. Um, so it's sort of like putting something out there in the world um, a, a life giving, I guess, in some way, uh, and then being asked to pick like between the things that you gave life to. So some of them I think are better structured. Like some, I'm just like, I don't know that I would make any changes to that the way that it came out. Um, uh, you know, cause there's something about it that is just like, it just came out the way that I, I would have wanted it to. And then other pieces, you know, if I had more time, um, I would tinker with, but you know, one of the things with prompts that is the challenge is like, you're trying to, um, like produce content. Um, like it's a little bit of a challenge to see the kind of ways that you can produce content that is a little bit more, uh, like tongue in cheek is maybe a little bit less refined. Um, and there's something that's beautiful about that too. Uh, cause I think sometimes, um, the, the writing process, um, 
in a formal way, like it's very constructive, right? And there's lots of drafts and uh, you do a lot of edits and you chop it down. And um, I think the beauty of doing a prompt and being able to sort of instantaneously post it on Instagram is uh, that, that it's just there, um, you know? And so there's some that I would maybe like in time alter and, and look at, and I feel that way about my work. But what I appreciate about this kind of practice is that it ends up just being very generative um, and, and therefore regenerative as a writing practice um, for me, um, you know, and I think is also like something that I get to share with the world. And as I said, like, hopefully, um, you know, resonates with folks and, uh, and is something that, um, you know, is what I was trying to accomplish when I was sort of putting it out in the world. I find writing such an interesting, fascinating practice that way, because it really is like this very self-contained thing in my head, um, that goes out in the world. And then I have, you know, it's a little bit like, um, remember hearing a teaching about, um, like gossip and the idea of like, um, you know, someone trying to blow on a, on a dandelion, right. When it's still at seed and how the, the seeds go everywhere and you don't have control over where they go. And I feel a little bit like, uh, writing and social media and getting your work out there that it's a bit like that right like once it's out I, I can't recall it I can't bring it back in um, so it um, sort of stands on its own and, and has its own life um, outside of that but also you know I think hopefully resonates with folks uh, in the way that it was um, that it did in my head because I for myself if I'm like if I'm thinking that something is really funny if I'm a little bit turned on after writing something and blushing you know um, I hope that it has that little spark that'll do the same for someone else. Uh, I want to thank you, Sean, so much for, uh, coming and, uh, speaking with me and sharing kind of your insight on how, uh, you relate to the world as like a two-spirit artist, uh, writer, storyteller, um, and kind of how that relation is, uh, and that kinship, which kind of was like throughout the conversation. And I was wondering just before we wrap up here, if we could, um, touch a little bit about why or like how, a relationship or the theme of relation, um, is integrated in your writing? Yeah. So I think, um, I think for me, um, it's all relationship, right? So I think as indigenous people, especially, uh, and I, I know that I've heard this from, from my Anishinaabe kin and elders, um, that we're highly relational beings like that relationships is what we are. Uh, and so for me, it feels weird to think about any writing or work or art that I would produce being extracted from that. Um, you know, I think even though the process of making art um, is, you know, a highly individual uh, and sometimes isolated process, we do it in context to the, to our relations and communities uh, and, you know, and lots of people inspire art. So whether that's like sweeties and lovers, um, you know, and trying to like, create more space for discussions around like folks who, you know, do non-normative relationship structures, whether it's queerness, whether it's disability, like all of those things are, you know, all of my work is inspired by 
folks in my life and folks I'm in relationship with, um, you know, to, to be able to create. So I don't, I think the work is created in isolation, but the context from the work um, is all relationship uh, and relationship with everything around me. So whether I'm writing about, you know, I, I wrote one prompt the other day about a panther uh, and, and, and my cat, right? And I'm thinking about the relationship between the panther and the cat and someone transforming into a panther and like there being, you know, a sexy situation that comes out of it. Like all of that is relational, right? Because it, it forms the basis of who, who I am as a person and especially as an indigenous person. Um, so I think, um, you know, it like the writing can't happen without that. And I think, you know, some of it is that, as I said earlier, like I really feel strongly that what I write is meant to be a love letter to the communities I'm a part of and to those folks who have given me, um, you know, love and sucker and, um, and support. And, you know, if I can, the small thing I can do is give someone a, a laugh or, you know, a throb or like something to make their life under the like horribleness that is capitalism and settler colonialism, like a little bit better, you know, through something that I wrote, I can't think of a better way to use those gifts. Right. Um, you know, if I think that, um, I can make our survival a little better in whatever way that I can, um, you know, then I'm honored to do that work, um, and honored to be able to, um, you know, push some of those boundaries and, and experiment and play, uh, and hopefully that inspires people. And I know that it does like, um, that it has inspired people to do the same. Right. So I, I'm always really grateful, uh, when folks come to me and say, you know, I've started writing smutty things because I saw your stuff or, you know, that really made me laugh or uh, I felt seen in that moment. Um, and a lot of it is also like to, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing as a writer because, a lot of folks think explicitly that the work that I write is about me uh, and it's not right. So some of it is certainly inspired by like actual events or, you know, is inspired by people that I know or is framed in a yeah, fantasy that I have, but really, you know, the, the characters that are created in the writing, um, you know, they exist on their own. So it's, it's not a matter of like that particular thing is something that happened to me, although that may inform it. Um, you know, so I think there's some really cool relationships there about how once it goes into that creative process, like there's something, you know, that is ceremony, like there is a spirituality to, to the things we put in the world and the way that it makes people feel. Uh, and so I'm honored to be able to, to do that work um, and to create those relational connections for folks. Yeah, I just think of that kind of notion in relation to my own work as like a beadwork artist and oftentimes within like the beadwork community, you'll hear the phrase beadwork is medicine. And like, I've often sat with that phrase and kind of, um, kind of like turned it over in my head and it, it feels, it started to like at the beginning of my beading journey, it definitely felt like, you know, the process of beading, the slow, like meticulous work, the patience that's needed, the humility of like, messing up a stitch or like adding a spirit bead um, by accident like it teaches you a lot of lessons and then also like I feel like this complication of like on the days like there's this teaching around like you're putting your own spirit into the thing you create 
and beadwork is medicine and what you if you are beating and within good energy like your good energy is in that piece and it goes to the wearer um and i've definitely been like kind of complicating that notion of like if beadwork is medicine then i shouldn't always be or only be beating in those instances of joy and and good energy but i could be beating in times of grief or in times of like other like heavier feelings or in excitement or you know and those those stories and and energies get interwoven with that piece as well and i just feel like that phrase could almost be or that framework that that phrase like represents can be translated to like many art forms of like you know when your pen hits the paper or your fingers hit the keyboard like that energy and that spirit is being poured into that creation or that that piece and um i think it is like a very um it's like a gift to and an honor to be able to like nourish that creation for the time you have it and then to like release it into the world where like you were saying like yes like we don't really have control um over how people interact with it or how they experience it but hopefully they experience it in in like the ways in which we intended um and so i think that's like kind of the power that comes from you know going back to that role of storytelling or those those roles of us as two-spirit people um but uh of those roles within our communities to like continue to share those gifts and create those stories and those creations um so i just wanted to uh thank you again uh big miigwetch for joining me this evening um oh this evening uh i like hosting a radio show now um but i would like to thank you uh for joining us today uh to have a conversation about um all things writing smutty um if you would have anything you would like to uh like close off with um you can also uh plug any upcoming um like events you have going on or projects um, and where folks can find you on the internet. I just wanted to say chi miigwech kanasko metanen for having me. I think uh, I'm really resonating with that idea of like artist, uh, like beating an artistry as medicine. And I, what I was actually thinking about as you were talking about that is like, and I was thinking about both painters and beaters and writers and what we have in common is you know, it's one brushstroke, it's one, you know, keystroke, it's one stitch at a time we create these beautiful tapestries and these beautiful stories um, through our work. Um, and it's all kind of in that way the same, right? Like there's always the, you know, the spirit beat of that small piece of text that I would change if I could go back, but I leave it because I'm like, no, it, this is the way that it was supposed to come. This is what it's supposed to look like and the way that it frames it a bit different. So, um, so I'm grateful for that metaphor and way of thinking about it. Um, so I wanted to say Chi Miigwech for that. My stuff's on Instagram. Uh, it's at Shani the K, S E A N uh, Y T H E K, uh, and uh, I post all things smutty um, there. Um, and yeah, I'm just really grateful to have had the time to sit and have this conversation. Miigwech, Akwazi. Thank you, 
uh, for being here. I am on Instagram at Wrestling Pine, and you can find everything beadwork and art related for me there. Um, and I want to say miigwetch for everyone who has listened and who has maybe uh, like heard what we've said today and it's resonated with you. I hope you've been inspired to write a smutty story or bead a smutty piece. Uh, now I'm like thinking of all of the like smuttober beaded pieces I could do if I had like um, unlimited hours in a day. Um, but thank you so much for being here and the end. To be continued, Troubling the Archive is hosted and produced by Anna Shawhawk. Technical support for the show comes through from Finn Sun. A major thanks goes to Hunter Dewache for their wonderful work in creating the logo for the series. The intro and outro are commissioned works by artist Chris Buckobinkowski. The show would not be possible without the support of QAG and the Canada Council for the Arts Digital Now Grant.